0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture is from Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 14. This is the word of God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. by craftiness and deceitful schemes.
1: Lord, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for the word that you've given to us. Thank you for your spirit who helps us understand it. We pray that you would apply this scripture to our lives this morning. Help us to understand the gifts that you've given to each of us how we can use them, and where they came from, and why. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Please be seated. People in the global West, not just the U.S., but other Western countries, are becoming increasingly independent. What I mean by that is we are shying away more and more from communities. Uh, In his recent book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a guy named Carl Truman aimed to explain how American society has got to where we are today, and he points to the increasing prevalence of what he's titled expressive individualism. The overall aim of his book, The Thesis, is to show the decline of organizations, and the rise of selfhood. We're all seeking to throw off the shackles that oppress us individually or prevent us from being fully ourselves. We express our, individual, our individuality in a way that prior generations would have probably scratched their heads at. And as a result, we're becoming less and less patriotic. We're becoming, actually more and more people are registering as independent voters than Republicans or, or Democrats. Uh, we're unwilling to be defined by anything outside ourselves. And now we're actually identif- we're, we're defining our own gender realities and sexual preferences based on our own desires and how we see the world and how we think everything should work. This is without respect to a normative, a should, some sort of standard, some sort of understanding that we were made in a certain way, or that we belong. There was another uh, bit less ambitious social studies book written in 2000 by a guy named Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone, and Putnam's thesis was... Uh, in a similar vein. He observed that people in the 70s, 80s, and 90s would bowl uh, in leagues. And bowling was becoming increasingly popular during that time. But leading up, to the, leading up to, the, to the new century, people were dropping out of leagues, but they were bowling just as often. So they still enjoyed the activity, but they didn't want to be with people. And so his, his thesis, and he probably is more of a theologian than he thought he might be, but his point is very similar to what we have here in, a, in our passage today and in uh, last week's passage even, that we are happier, his thesis was that we are happier when we are in a community. And that is where we are supposed to be. Each of us who believe and trust in Jesus for our salvation from sin, each of us are part of the same body of Christ as we heard last week. We're part of his big C church. We are unified and united by the gospel. Each of us has the same standing before Christ um, and before the judgment seat of God. We are guilty before Christ, but covered by Christ's sacrifice and justified solely by Christ's saving work on the cross. We are one and unified in those aspects. We can enjoy brotherhood and sisterhood in that truth in our lives, and also in eternity. We are all equally God's children, whether we're from Ukraine, the U.S., Canada, believe it or not, Or somewhere less bizarre. I'm just kidding. But God does not simply want uniform automatons in His big C church. We are all one, we are part of the same community. But He has created each human throughout history a unique person with different characteristics, with different souls. Just like he creates each snowflake individually and each star in the sky with different chemical properties. Commentator John Stott noted that we are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of every other, as if we had all been mass produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting. In its diversity, This is not just because of our different cultures, temperaments, and personalities, but because of the different gifts which Christ distributes for the enrichment of our common life. So point number one in your outline, uh, which you can find in the bulletin, is the giver of our gifts. Verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, we're going to skip 7, we're going to come back to that. Verses 8, 9, and 10 of our passage can be a little bit confusing at first blush because it's a reference to some obscure psalm, and we're talking about uh, there's an ascension and captives involved and the descension, and where is he descending to? Is he talking about earth or the grave? Or is he talking about hell? What's going on here? But let's look at these issues. <clears throat> Verse 8. a little alarm should go off in your head. Because he knew the Old Testament Scripture, the Hebrew Bible, as it existed then. He knew those, uh, those letters, those books, the prophets, the Psalms, like the back of his hand. He's quoting Psalm 68, 18 here. The picture of Christ in Psalm 68 is of a conquering king leading a bunch of captives prisoners of war, in his entourage. So he has just won a victory, and he's leading all the captors in his train. Now, by quoting this psalm in this context, Paul emphasizes that Christ, as our victorious captain, has plundered the goods of the enemy, taking the enemy captive— and sharing with us the spoils of war. In the larger context of the passage, zooming out even further, Christ then distributes to each of us from the abundance of the spoils of victory over evil, specific gifts even, with a specific purpose in each of our lives. The plunder of victorious battle, the booty, was sometimes distributed like this Uh, to the people of a victorious kingdom, but it was always used to build up the victorious kingdom, whether it was distributed or, or spent by one person. The point of one conquering one's enemy is to become more powerful or to defeat a threat or to increase in riches or grow your territory. So we have this wartime imagery here that Paul brings. And in the garden, when we look back in Genesis 3, God, after the fall, God was pronouncing the curses as a result of rebellion and sin. And he curses the serpent. He declares war on evil right then. And he foretells Jesus' victory over death, uh, through the cross and through his resurrection. He says this in Genesis 3, I will put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's in this war that was declared in Genesis 3, that we see the picture here of Christ leading a victorious train of his captured enemies. Look at verses 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So as he ascended... He rises from the grave. He defeats death. He leads this host of captives in his train with the spoils of war. He descended from the throne in heaven to the lower regions, the earth, at least the earth, right? He descended into the grave as well. Some people use this verse as a proof text to say he went to hell to defeat the enemy. It's unclear here, and it doesn't, it's not. Germain to our point today, but at least the lower regions re- refers at least to the earth. And he led us in victory over evil, and to plunder the house of the strong man, uh, Jesus references later in his, uh, uh, in his teaching, the devil, who he bound. He then shares with us the spoils of war, in Paul's perspective here, and this is the this is the lens through which Paul is viewing the gifts that we're going to examine today. He, he, he sees them as the spoils of war. And he gives, them, he gives them to us for the same common purpose. We are all to use them to build up the church, build up the kingdom of God. So that's point one. And if you get one thing out of today, I want you to see that it's, I tried to put it in the outline, but I was also pretty economical with words there. We have, all of us have unique gifts that were given to us by God in our lives. They were given by Jesus as victory over evil, and we are to use them to build up the church. That is an obligation. We are to employ our gifts. So that's the overall perspective here of, um, of today's text. And I want you to, to keep that in mind as we proceed. Point number two in our outlines is the commonality or universality or ubiquity, the commonality and diversity of our gifts. So, what I mean by that is we all have gifts. And they are all diverse. Christ has many desires for his church. We are called the bride of Christ, right? He wants us to be pure. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants us to know him more and more fully as we live until we f- will f- know him fully in eternity. <clears throat> Speaking of gifts, we, we have to talk about Christmas. Christmas. Um and I love Christmas. I maybe I'm alone in that, but um I there were some painful years transitioning from childhood to adulthood where you know you look forward to the surprise, of, what do people get me? What are the gifts that I get? And then you transition to being a spouse and maybe a parent, where really the focus isn't on you anymore, the focus is on the kids or the focus is on others, and your role changes from being the recipient to being the giver. So there's this pressure on you to get good gifts. I mean, even Jesus said, fathers know how to give good gifts, and that's even more pressure. (laughs) But as you know, the best gifts are given by people who know you really well. They pay attention. They drop, you know, as you drop hints throughout the year, They're writing them down, taking copious notes. As that person gives you a gift, it's not only the gift itself, but it's also a statement that I know you really well. You said this in February, that you wanted these shoes. So it's a a statement of thoughtfulness. It's a statement of care, and it's a statement of your love um, to give a good gift. But Jesus doesn't have to guess at what we want or what we need, not only because he's all-knowing, but because he made us. Nobody knows us better than he does. Not only what we want or what we would be benefited by, but what we're capable of. Like it says in the Psalms, he knew us as we were being knitted together in our mother's wombs. He created us in a very literal sense. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly what we're capable of. So the spiritual gifts that we, that we receive, as we see here, all of us are given gifts that are tailor-made for us. God knew exactly what he was doing when he gave the Sullivans, the Pasquales, the Lewises, the Grahams, Lisa, the gift of evangelism. Now, something really interesting here. He gave them the same gift, the gift of evangelism. But they're doing completely different things with them. And they're being played out in their individual lives in totally different ways to impact completely different people groups, all to the glory of God, all to build up his kingdom and to build up the church. That's what verse 7 means when it says... But grace, the Greek word here is charis, which means gifts. So, but grace, or gifts, was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, Paul's saying we, gifts are given according to the wisdom that Christ has for us. He's thinking about us individually as he distributes these gifts. In his perfect wisdom, he made us from nothing. He made us who we are. He ordained our life circumstances. He he ordained where, when, to whom we were born, what illnesses we get, what successes we enjoy. This is the sovereignty of God played out in in one sliver here as we consider the gifts that we have. So of course he will give us good gifts because he knows us and he is sovereign. Today's passage mentions um, just four types of people as we look at um, verses, uh, let's see, verses 11, verse 11 and 12. Um, he mentions four types of people who are given gifts. And those people, those types of people, that's not exhaustive, by the way, Uh, When those people exercise their gifts, they are themselves gifts to the church. So the four types of gifts in today's passage, they they refer to a specific subset of people. But verse 7 of our passage, the, the opening verse, clearly states each one of us, everyone has a gift. So he's saying everyone has a gift. They were given by Christ as spoils of war. And then he transitions and says, now we're going to talk about four types of people. For a second. But before we get to those four types, let's continue to look at each of our gifts that verse 7 talks about. Turn with me to Romans 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. Verse 6. We all have gifts. Our gifts are diverse and unique as we are. And it is our obligation to use our gifts. When we use the gifts, we are to exercise them in the appropriate God-glorifying way. We're to use them for their purpose. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 12. Look with me starting at verse 4. This is a longer passage, um, but I hope you'll bear with me. It is so important to understand uh, this passage in light of what what our passage is today with respect to our gifts that each of us have. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. By the one spirit. To another, the workings of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ." If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This is exactly the point that's tied up here in chapter 4. We are to strive for unity and find our part in the body of Christ, the one church of God. But within that one body, there are many body parts. And we each have a different role to play. Going away to college can be an intimidating prospect, especially for an introvert like me. You go there, you go to orientation, all the different groups, the little student groups have little tents and tables And that's when you go and sign up and you say, hey, those are my people. I want to, you know, oh, Christian, uh, there's a Christian group, Navigators or Campus Fellowship. um, Or over here, Engineers Engineers for Jesus. Or just Engineers. So you try to find your people. But if you're like me, as you're wandering around the orientation, you might think, you know i could find my people and on my way over to them i see them and i think they would have no idea if i just turned around and didn't talk to them i could just go back to my dorm but that's not how we're supposed to function in the church that's not how the church is supposed to be we're not supposed to kind of go and saunter in the back sit sit down quietly leave right at the end and not get involved and just not ruffle any feathers Not spend any more time there than we need to. That's not what we're supposed to do. In fact, we have an obligation to do the opposite. Trying to fit in or thinking about fitting in is the last thing you should think about when you come to church or when you come to a Christian community. Okay, one more passage outside of Ephesians. I promise, this is the last one. 1 Peter 4. I'm not going to make you turn there. You can turn there if you want. I'm not going to keep you, keep you from it. 1 Peter 4. 4, 8 through 11 says this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Cherish gifts, there it is again. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Here are some examples. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Right before Peter gives instructions about using gifts, he's urging us to keep loving one another earnestly. And how we are to show hospitality to each other. Some people are really gifted for hospitality. Or gifted toward encouragement. Or gifted toward prayer. Or acts of service. But this is all in order that in everything, just like verse 11 First 1 Peter 4:8, Or 1 Peter 4 says, In order that in everything God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ. Your gift has been given so that God may be glorified. There is a purpose to it. It's not so we can be happy or self fulfilled. If we refuse to use our gifts when we have the opportunity and when it is clear that we should do so, we're refusing to give glory to God. That is, do him. Don't do that. <clears throat> Point three in your outline is the purpose and obligation of our gifts. So far, we've talked about the fact that everyone who trusts in Jesus, everyone who trusts in his sacrifice to pay for their sins, has been given gifts. Gifts that each one of us has an obligation to use the gifts. we talked about how our gifts were not given without a cost, without Christ going to war for us to win victory over sin and death. And the result of that victory is that he can share gifts with us so that we can build up the church. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 now. we see these four types of gift recipients discussed specifically as again as a subset of christendom verse 11 and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up uh, for building up the body of christ there's controversy here we have a comma in the ESV, which is right. Um, It is not, you know, if you remove that comma, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, um, that would imply that the pastors and teachers and evangelists are doing all the work, and we get to sit back and consume and just come and be filled and go and be on our way. But that's not what it says. It's not the intent of the passage. And most Reformed commentators agree on that point. The gifts given to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers are to equip the rest of us for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So here at Orchard, we're led by our pastor elders, who were led by the evangelists who planted Orchard and planted LBC who were led by the prophets and apostles in Scripture so that the rest of us, we the members today, can use our gifts and be equipped by them for the building up of the body of Christ, to build each other up. We all have the gifts, we all have raw materials, but those gifts on their own may not reach their full potential in our lives without being equipped by the church leaders. So you see this, the, the role here? We all have gifts. We've all got the raw materials, but we also need to be equipped, and we need, to be, we need to discover those gifts, and we need to start to explore those gifts. And part of that process is what pastor elders are for and what the teaching is for here. This is one of the essential purposes of the pastor-elders, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. One commentator said that this this equipping is uh, exemplified by spiritual mentorship, where we have a, a spiritual mentor, or, um, or an ad- I don't want to say spiritual advisor. That sounds pretty eastern. You guys know what I mean. <clears throat> so, like, there are all types of spiritual mentors, and even some of the people who have met with me and guided me over the years, the people who guided them would not be a good fit for me. Um, so I, you know, having a good fit. With a mentor-mentee relationship, discipling ministry—having I mean, a good fit's important. You have to get along with the person, but they don't come in one flavor either. There's, there's a, just like everyone has a diversity of gifts. One person's gift of discipleship might look different than another person's gift of discipleship, which is one of the wonderful ways that just one of the wonderful proofs of how the Spirit works in the building up of his own church, by equipping different people to pour into the lives of their um, mentees or um, discipleship partners. Commentator Hughes writes this, "'The gifts and enabling grace that we have have been given to us as Christ apportioned them. They come from the conquering king.'" They are given with great expectation on his part. For he expects us to use them to bring power and victory in the church. That's a high calling. That's a high bar. We are to use our gifts to bring power and victory to the church, says Hughes. He continues, The bottom line for every Christian believer is that each one of us should be involved in some kind of ministry. Praise God, many have created their own areas of service to refugees, unwed mothers, the homeless, the elderly, the handicapped, the pornography battle, pro-life witness, to name a few. But those who have no place of service are aberrations, meaning they're the exception to the rule. Every believer is to minister. We all have a part to play. So each of us has a gift given to us as the spoils of war from our conquering king with a great expectation for us to use them. He's given to us, the pastor elders, to equip us and to teach us so that we can better use our gifts, so that we can identify our gifts and to begin to use them. And as we use them, we're to use them to build up the body of Christ. Verses 13 and 14, let's look here. Verse 13. Ephesians 4. Actually, our main passage. Until we all attain to the unity of the... We're to use our gifts. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning... Or by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So these are fairly large goals. Again, just like Hughes said that we are to bring power and victory to the church through the use of our gifts, you know, to, to attain the unity of the faith of, uh, of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, no longer being children, that's a lot there are a lot of dependent clauses and, and articles in, in that kind of list of ofs. So let's break this down a little bit. I, I like how there's a, there's a scripture paraphrase. It's not a translation strictly. It's called The Voice. Um, but I like how that paraphrases it. It says, These ministries will continue until we are unified in faith and filled with the knowledge of the Son of God, until we stand mature in his teachings and fully formed in the likeness of the anointed, our liberating king. Isn't that beautiful? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is eventually. And until then, we will, we will continue to mature. But this really emphasizes our obligation to continue to mature. You know, we're only here for a given period of time. We have to make the best of that time, and we have to spiritually mature as much as we can, not only because we're commanded to do so and we should respond in obedience to any commandment, but also because the more spiritually mature that you grow, the more of Christ you realize that you have to enjoy. So the more you learn, the closer you look at God, the larger he becomes, the more detailed he becomes. Like looking at a a masterpiece painting, where you've seen it a hundred times in in, in, in history books or or online or something. When you get to see it up close, you see the strokes and you, you begin to examine it. You begin to really wonder at how beautiful it is. That's what we're to continue to do. (laughs) We're to continue to... First, we might get a glance of a thumbnail, and then we, we begin to examine a little closer and a little closer, and then we get to look at it in person and see how truly beautiful Christ is. So we're not to convert and camp. We're not to look at the little thumbnail and say, yeah, that's nice. Jesus is cool. We're not to simply just show up at church or just live stream from home or punch your church clock for the week. Rather, we must grow our whole lives and mature, and the way that we do that is by getting involved here in your local church. Some of you may be racking your brains at this point, trying to think of what your gifting might be. Well, commentator Phillips has a handy tip. Here's what he says. How do you discern your spiritual gift or gifts? The answer is that spiritual gifts are revealed during and through service to Christ. You should respond to needs in the church, listen to this, that you are able to meet. As you serve, you should pray for discernment about your gifts and ask others in the church to tell you what they see. Mainly, though, your gifts will be revealed by Christ's blessing to you and to others. When you're using your gifts, you're not burdened with the ministry, but filled with joy. And usually, you encounter results that indicate the Spirit's power. So do not wait for a mystical revelation of your gifts. Begin serving Christ, eager for him to reveal the gifts and calling he has graciously appointed for you. I like that wisdom. In C.S. Lewis's uh, allegorical novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the um, Chronicles of Narnia series, four siblings have been sent away from their London home during the Second World War, during the bombing of London. And they're staying at a country estate. It's kind of the setting for the book. After settling into this estate, they begin to explore. And uh, they go into some rooms that are off limits. In one room, there's just empty room with a big wardrobe in it. And they, they're playing hide-and-seek. One of them falls into the wardrobe, or uses the wardrobe, falls backward, and he is in another land, magically. He's in the land of Narnia. And this magical land of Narnia is an allegory for the kingdom of God. So he comes back and brings his siblings. And uh, as they begin to wander around the world and meet people, they're instantly recognized by the bizarre creatures that they meet there um, as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Not just because they're human, but because in that place... Sons of Adam and daughters of Eve are royalty, one of the first encounters they have in Narnia um, i I have to admit I was kind of caught off guard by the fact that Father Christmas just shows up in the middle of this allegorical novel, but as you might imagine, he has gifts for them uh, he, he, as he gives gifts they're not you know he says they 're not toys, and they're not age-appropriate baubles for them. Edward, the eldest, is given a sword and a shield. Susan, the middle sister, is given a bow, arrow, and uh, arrows, and, and a hunting horn. And Lucy is given a flask of magic he- healing cordial and a small dagger. And she's like six. I don't know if I'd trust my six-year-old with a dagger. But even as he's giving them, as I mentioned, he says they're tools. They're not toys. They have a specific purpose, and as we see their stories unfold, we see, oh, it's a good thing that Lucy has this magic healing cordial, or, boy, it's a good thing that Peter has his sword and shield. They were given with those needs in mind that they were going to meet. So, friends, each of you have gifts that you were given very specifically and for a purpose. And God, in his wisdom, chose the tools to equip you. Here's the countercultural part of this. Going back to our, that book that I mentioned in the beginning, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The purpose that God has in mind when he gives gifts to you, that purpose is not to express your individualism. The purpose is not self-fulfillment. It's not your own satisfaction. Your gifts are for other people. Your gifts are for the building up of the bride of Christ, the church. Also, I hope you don't hear me say that you're given gifts at birth or at conversion, and that's the set of gifts that you have, and have fun. More often than not, your gifts will not be given to you at birth or at conversion, but out of your life circumstances. So you grow up with with a a single parent, and you develop a gift for leadership as you help your siblings with homework, with chores, and you help your household uh, in support. Your spouse has a disability, and you develop a gift for compassion, you're diagnosed with a chronic illness, and you develop a gift for empathy. You fill a need for a Sunday school teacher when, when there's a gap in a schedule, and you end up developing a gift for teaching. In all likelihood, you won't just have one gift your whole life either. You'll discover, dive into, and develop new and different gifts throughout different phases of your life, and these will be revealed as you do the work Of serving the church. So I encourage you to start somewhere. Some practical ideas. We had someone just host an event. They said, you know what, we need a daddy daughter dance. And that gift for organization and administration blessed over 70 people in one night. We have other people who are really gifted at prayer, just have a prayer night. There was a prayer night last night organized. That was a wonderfully blessing. It was a wonderful blessing to everybody who, who was there. So, organize something that you are passionate about. Organize a worship night. If someone organizes a worship night, please let me know. I will be there. Start where there's a need. And if you can't think of anything, email Brian and ask how you can get involved. That's B R Y A N at orchardbible.org. I bet you'll discover or develop gifts that you didn't even know that you had, and by working them out, you'll fulfill your purpose and bless the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the gifts that you give to each one of us. You know us so well. You created us, and you have given us the equipment to build each other up. And in that, we also, as we participate in your church and are involved here, we are blessed by others. We thank you for this wonderful synergy that you have in your church, that you work through your spirit. We're so grateful for that. And we are grateful for the ability and the charge to glorify you in our lives for nothing could be a greater calling. In your son's name we pray.